Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Welcome to Terra Incognita, the adventure podcast. This is the second of our dispatches, but the first in what will be an ongoing series of book recitals. This particular piece is written and read by mountaineer Nick Bullock. Nick began his adult life as a PT in some of Britain's hardest prisons and is now one of the most celebrated alpinists in the world. He's also an incredibly talented writer and won the Mountain Literature Award at Banff Mountain Book Festival in 2018 as well as being shortlisted for the 2018 Boardman Tasker Award for Mountain Literature. I've had the joy of interviewing Nick close to 10 times for various projects and we've recorded a full-length feature that will be revealed in the future. I'll let Nick introduce the piece himself, but before I do, there's a bit of lingo and jargon that you might not understand if you're not a seasoned climber. So a quick glossary. The crux is the hardest bit of the climb. A free ascent is climbing the route without pulling or standing on artificial protection such as bolts or safety kit that you place in cracks or holes yourself. An off-width is a crack in the rock too big for a single hand or foot to fit in, but also too small to get your whole body into. They're notoriously difficult to climb. A2 is an aid climbing grade signifying intermediate difficulty. In this particular instance, bolts have been drilled into the rock to allow people to pass with much greater ease. Arm bars, placing your whole forearm sideways in a crack so that the palm and elbow make contact on opposite sides of the crack. And finally, front point, the spike on the front of the crampon used for technical winter climbing. Right, over to Nick. Okay, so I'm Nick Bullock, and I'm in a house where I'm cat-sitting above Denny Ollen in North Wales. It's pouring with rain. The rain's hitting the windows. It's going to affect the sound, but that doesn't seem to bother you much, being the professional that you are, Matt. (laughs) And I'm going to read a chapter from my second book, Tides. Um, Chapter 34, which is called Please Q Here, and it's about my mum, and it's actually about my mum dying, but it's actually quite, I think, positive and life-affirming. So here we go then, Uh, chapter 34, Please Q Here, December 2014, Stoke Bruin, England. At the beginning of December, I had driven from Flamberius to Chamonix, and on my way I called to see mum and dad on their boat. Jasper was still moored at Stoke Bruin, near Northampton. After a couple of hours, as I stood to leave, Mum handed me a Waitrose shopping bag of Christmas gifts. Mint chocolates, dried dates, a Christmas cake she knew I liked to eat on bivouacs, a good bottle of South African Shiraz, and a birthday card containing cash she could not afford to give. Dad was in his chair, smoking and drinking tea. I took the Hessian bag, a bag for life. 
from Mum's painfully thin and arthritic hand, and after a gentle hug, left the boat. The week after New Year 2015, Chamonix, France. Tim Neal was up front. On occasion I saw his head torch shine in my direction. We'd left the Refugio Torino at 6.30am and headed into Cirque Morde with the intention to climb Fantasia, an enclosed ice line I had climbed a few years before. My lungs crackled with infection, my breathing was laboured, and I wondered if this was the same strain of infection that Mum had caught soon after I had seen her, the same strain that she had died from a week ago. I had been climbing up here with Tim that day also, the day Mum had been rushed to hospital. But I didn't receive the text from Leslie until the following morning when I got up in preparation to climb again. I pictured Mum then, the same as I pictured her now, lying on a trolley in a hospital corridor, tended by ambulance men. Leslie had been with her, she said they were in the corridor for three hours before being taken to the intensive care unit. Following Tim, my skis cut the snow and my breathing burnt and in the dark all around I could see Mum lying on a trolley in a long, brightly lit corridor. When it became light I could see jagged mountains on the distilled red-striped horizon. There had been so many mountains. Chuffs circled. Their wings spread wide to catch the breeze. The chuffs reminded me of starlings, the birds from my childhood. As a teenager, to feed my ferrets, I would shoot starlings with an air rifle. As a 14-year-old, starlings were scrawny scavengers. They had nothing to offer. No beautiful song. No beautiful plumage, no grace. Starlings were ferret food. Tim and I geared up, the same as I had geared up a million times, the same as I had geared up beneath this climb a few years earlier with Steve Ashworth, a time when Mum was still alive. I sat on my rucksack, fitting crampons to my orange ski boots. Mum was tall and slim with dark Mediterranean features, but in that frame was strength and determination. I could see the deep scar in Mum's leg, where as a child I had opened all the drawers of a steel filing cabinet, and as the cabinet toppled forward with the weight, she had jumped in front, taking the force of the fall and supporting it as it pinned her to the floor with me underneath her. Someone eventually found us, and lifted the cabinet away. Snap! My crampon locked to my orange boot, and the holes in the snow at my feet filled with powder. Arriving home from school once, I found Mum covered in oil beneath her blue Hillman Minx, changing the starter motor. It was a time when cars with diesel engines were rare, another of Dad's car experiments, and this engine had been taken from a large van. It was old, and the starter motor was big and heavy. Pass me that spanner, love. I'll get some tea on in a bit. 
Tim set off, wading deep snow and crossing the Bergsrand beneath the stream of ice that clung to corners and flowed over rock overhangs until it hit the col beneath the summit of Montmodo. I followed, clipping to a belay by the side of the first steepening. There were many times I thought I would not outlive Mum. I thought she would be in that unenviable situation which, I'm sure most parents dread, of outliving one of their children. I was wrong. And as Tim and I climbed higher and the wind on the col increased, this time, for the first time, the situation felt different. I realised that if I died, there of course would be upset and sadness from friends and family. But the one person who would have been really, truly devastated was now gone. This is how it felt. But was there more? Since staying in Inisettis, I'd become friends with Dave Asprey. He is a member of the Climbers Club and also an engineer who used to know Mum and Dad through servicing their printing press when they had their computer stationery business. Dave told me how Dad had offered to pay him to take me out rock climbing and learn how to climb and use ropes safely, or at least how to use ropes, as I would often go out and solo. Your dad used to come up to me all the time, Dave said, in his thick pottery's accent, something like a more refined Birmingham accent, and he would beg me to go out climbing with you before you killed yourself. Dad's interest on the surface had never appeared deep, but Mum had always took a delight in whatever activities my sister and I were involved in, to the point that when I became interested in mountaineering and climbing, within months she could name mountains, mountaineers, Scottish winter climbs, summer rock climbs, alpine climbs, Himalayan climbs, South American climbs, the lot. She could enter into conversation about the subject with confidence. This, of course, was not always the best, because pulling the wool over her eyes became impossible. Leaving the sun and climbing into the shadow, into the confined icy corner, images and memories flowed with every drag of the pick, every kick and swing and pull. I could see Mum totally worn out, falling asleep in a high-backed chair with a half-filled mug of strong instant coffee balanced by her side. Sometimes, so tired, the mug fell from her hand. Strong coffee was certainly a big part of Mum's life, and she was seldom without one. And it was generally partnered with a super long cigarette. It says something about her determination that after nearly 50 years of smoking, one day she decided to give up. 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 Up above the spindrift ripped into the blue sky and swirled. It swirled like steam from a mug, like stalling murmuration, like smoke, like ashes. And on either side of this slender ice formation, the granite mullions hemmed us in. I was reminded of the strong yet skeletal oaks that stood on either side of the wooden church gates as we waited for the hearse that carried Mum to arrive. In the topmost branches, the Stalids had waited with us. 
March 2015, Chamonix, France. Another winter season in Chamonix was drawing to an end. I sat on a stone wall and soaked up the afternoon sun. The newly constructed entrance of the midi telephoric station was in front of me. Glass, metal, stone, wood. The structure proudly shone. How many times in my life... Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. But I sat and waited like this. How many nervous and excited minutes, hours, days even. But like a stone rubbed smooth, I could not help but think. Some of the innocent mountain magic had been lost with the passing of almost 22 years of my climbing life. Jack Geldard, my climbing partner for our attempt on a climb called Stupenda, had still not returned from the boulangerie. And as I sat and I waited, waited with the Chamonix hubbub happening behind me, I watched two workers dressed in blue boiler suits chipping and spreading salt on a patch of ice that looked like the outline of an island. Pot brown and jagged, water ran from the disintegrating edge of the ice island. The slow brown flow trickled and finally disappeared into a deep crack between the paving slabs. Above, Stallings looked down from where they were perched on the sparkling steel frame of the midi station. Heavy breathing and the rumble of rocks loosened by late afternoon sun were the only sounds now. Jack and I had skied down the Valley Blanche. On my left, a single old ski tip was pointing from the glacier. I checked to see if it was an atomic, one of the set I lost when airlifted with my broken ankle from the Petit Jurasse. It wasn't, and with a dull ache in my right foot, I continued towards the Lachaux hut. I had stayed in the Lachaux many times with many different partners, Jules, John Bracey, Rich Lucas, Stu McAleese and Tim Neal. So many people, so many days and nights. Jack and I left the hut at 5am. We had crossed the glacier and climbed the approach slope beneath Stupenda, an overhanging and direct crack line in the Aiguille de Tacul. I was deep inside a chimney at the beginning of the third pitch and I struggled to remove the gloves I had stuffed down my front. The food in my chest pockets and the bundles of blue four millimetre tat still bulged in front of me like a beer drinker's paunch. The styrofoam conditions Jack and I had read about in the Philip Batu book, Mont Blanc, the finest roots, were nowhere to be found. Instead, stuck to the dark beneath the numerous overhangs 
was meringue. Stupenda is given a grade 36M6A2. I'm not sure what this means. Grades in the mountains can often be superfluous. I climbed higher, squeezing deeper, deeper into overhanging granite, deeper into the mountain to finally reach the pitch three belay. Jack seconded the pitch and I set off pitch four. I swung through the overhangs directly above the belay. Certain I had just free climbed the crooks. I shouted to Jack, hashtag first free ascent. But as I pulled through another overhang and into another crack, I looked up to see a flared and overhanging off width. My hashtag hubris smacked back at me and I made a pact with myself to try and be more humble. On the smooth wall to the right were two space bolts. I realised this must be the A2 section and the bolts had been placed for upward progression. I squirmed and arm barred and leg barred and body barred until I felt drunk and I could bar no more. My stomach felt punched. My torso was above the highest bolt. I attempted to swing a pick into a clear sliver of ice glued to the back of the crack. But each time, only a single tooth caught. I could not swing the axe properly because of the restricting crack and because my body was balanced precariously, taut, extended, I needed to escape these constricting granite chains. My left foot, shin, knee, thigh failed to purchase and repeatedly I slithered back to the one foothold inside the crack. Suddenly I realised how important free climbing this stupenda had become and my younger determination kicked in, shocking my older self. Knee bar, arm bar, squirming, Battling, first free ascent, millimetres, armbar, look at me. I took hold of the axe, jabbed into the drool of ice, thrutching, sweating, a millimetre, a centimetre, still clean. Hunting, hanging, wedged, still clean. Held in place by a twisted thigh, body tension, still clean. Level with my right foot was the higher of the two bolts, which had a carabiner clipped to it. I stared. It was tempting for a front point. Who would know? But I couldn't. I just couldn't, because, of course, I would know. Some of the less honest things I've said or done, of which I am less than proud, still haunt me, and I have learnt that my life is more healthy with honesty. I have stripped myself to skin and bone and sinew to make myself light. Ego and the fear of failure could, at one time, weigh me down. But fortunately, not that often anymore. So what if I fall and the free ascent is lost? So what if I don't clamour to update my status? This fight is my fight and my fight alone. I matched the axe with both hands, pulled and squirmed, millimetres, millimetres. My right leg flapped and scraped, millimetres, squirming. But the ice grew tired and the axe ripped and ice shards exploded, hit me in the face and I fell. I fell like a stalling shot with a lump of lead fired from a teenager's air rifle. 
and as I fell, being scared hardly entered my mind. But for a second, just one plummeting second, being disappointed and even being angry did. But the disappointment and the anger was only for a second. And by the time eight metres have passed, I was happy and in some way content. Are you okay? Jack shouted. Yep, yeah, I'm good, Tor. I pulled myself up the rope and this time using a front point neatly placed into the carabiner, clipped to the high bolt, I managed to find a hook. Once more I began to squirm and thrash until eventually reached the belay. Three bold and technically demanding pitches followed, but finally I was standing in the breche at the top of the climb. Exhausted and enshrouded by dark, I had taken a claw hammer to my brain. In fact, my life was taking a claw hammer to my brain. But Mum would have been proud, right? And Dad also? I lay on a wooden bench looking at the stars. Jack lay on a second bench doing the same. There were a million of them, a starling's chest of iridescence, black plumes smattered with silver flecks amongst an oil slick of green, blue, purple and red. It was half past midnight. Jack and I had skewed the bottom section of the Valley Blanche and walked the steep snow slope leading through the woods to the small wooden hut at the start of the narrow and zigzagged James Bond track. The track would eventually lead back to Chamonix. I sat up and looked across the orange glow of town, across the moving white headlights, the dogs and cats, the parties, the blue shutters, the frosted cobbles, the cafes, the silver icicles hanging from gutters, the stationary lorries with smoking chimneys and beyond. My eyes moved onto the snow slopes of the Brevont and Flegere and the peace bashers, bashers out on the hillsides, moving around like a war of the world's invasion, flashing yellow lights, powerful white beams smoothing and grooming. How are you feeling? Jack asked. I'm totally knackered, I replied without taking my eyes from the moving lights of the peace bashers that were now blurred by the cloud of condensation rising from my mouth. Bloody love this feeling. Never want it to end. And then it hit me. Because of course, it will end. I had lost mum and already crossed the halfway point of my own life. And as I lay on the bench looking at the stars, I knew this queue was the same queue that we all stood in. Realising this almost made me weep. But it also made this lifetime, this expanding lifetime, and the sacrifice to live it more worthwhile. And as I lay in the chill, with thick steam rising from my clothing, I realised that I still clung to the alpine innocence. But with growing older, it needed more of a jolt. But with this growing older, other facets had also become more important. The shared experience, the connection to the surroundings, 
the friends and of course the memories. And in the branches of the trees surrounding Jack and myself, I imagine starlings, such gregarious and beautiful survivors. Thank you for listening. This podcast is produced by Cold House in association with Sidetrack magazine. Sidetrack's an amazing resource for stories of adventure and exploration, and you can find more on sidetrack.com. I sincerely recommend that you buy Nick's book, and you'll find a link to do so in the show notes on the website at theadventurepodcast.co.uk. This podcast is hosted by Matt Pycroft and produced by Pip Saunders and Tom Carr Griffin. If you want to get in touch, you can email us at info at theadventurepodcast.co.uk.